Welcome to week four, class two, for Phil 2500, Introduction to Feminist Philosophy. This lecture is on Brianna Toole's article, From Standpoint Epistemology to Epistemic Oppression. Brianna Toole is an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy at Claremont McKenna College. She was previously a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Philosophy at Baruch College, CUNY, the City University of New York, and a pre-doctoral fellow in the Department of Philosophy at the Ma Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT. She received her PhD in philosophy from the University of Texas at Austin, and her research explores issues at the intersections of epistemology, which is what we're reading her in, feminist theory and the philosophy of race. <clears throat> Primarily, she writes, I explore how race and gender influence what we are in a position to know. A further aim, she writes, is to consider how failure to acknowledge the role of race and gender in knowledge acquisition facilitates certain harms among these social and epistemic oppressions. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today. So let's dive right in. The article begins by saying, epistemology is changing. Epistemologist, Toole writes, are no longer concerned solely with questions regarding what conditions are necessary for knowledge or how knowledge is transmitted they have shifted their attention to concerns about how epistemic practices might oppress. Although we might wonder if this is also about knowledge transmission in some way, how knowledge is transmitted and also about the conditions that are necessary for knowledge. <clears throat> so maybe um, epistemology isn't changing that much. She writes that epistemic oppression has become the focus of much feminist epistemology over the last decade. This makes sense, she writes, if the aim of epistemology is to bring us closer to truth, to think about why, what things are true and why, or what knowledge is better or why, then any practice that threatens this should be investigated and epistemic oppression is something that threatens this um, truth. So here we have an explicit description of her thesis in this paper that in order to understand, address, and eliminate epistemic oppression, we must appeal to conceptual tools made available by standpoint epistemology. And standpoint epistemology is a very big theory in uh, feminist epistemology, originally from Marx, as Toole uh, writes, and also, I mean, you, you might also have heard the term situated knowledges, which is from Donna Haraway, which is very similar to this standpoint of epistemology, or an, another standpoint of epistemology. Okay, so first, what is standpoint epistemology? So broadly speaking, Toole writes, the idea that comes to us from standpoint epistemology is that there are non-epistemic features 
related to an agent's identity, social identity, that make a difference to what an epistemic agent is in a position to know. So in contrast to traditional, traditional epistemology, which examined only epistemic features and suggested that it was only epistemic features that make a difference to what a person is in a position to know or not know. So there's kind of a, um, a bit of a joke in, in epistemology, an inside joke in epistemology research, that traditional epistemology is all about a cat on the mat. Who is in the position to know that whether or not there is a cat on the mat? And the, the view here of traditional epistemologists is that it's what's relevant to finding out whether someone is in a good or bad position to know some proposition, like prop the proposition that there is a cat on the mat. What's, what's important to know are epistemic features, only epistemic features. And epistemic features are things like truth, evidence, reliability, or, I mean, you can just think of things that seem more um, kind of obviously connected to determining whether something is true or false. And the point of standpoint, or one of the, the, the big move that standpoint epistemology makes is to say it's you've the features that you've identified as being important for determining whether someone is in a position to know or not are not just what you've called epistemic features but are also non-epistemic features which if you think about it is kind of a weird kind of weird terms because really what's being argued is that things that seem like non-epistemic features are epistemically relevant features. Uh, and you can think about those non-epistemic features as being uh, social identities. Things like being a woman, being black, being rich. So let's think about the proposition again that there is a cat on the mat. And in that example, it's not obvious, or maybe it's just not true, that any of those social features are going to be epistemically relevant. So it doesn't seem to matter if the person who is telling us there's a cat on the mat is a man or a woman. But one of the points that uh, feminist standpoint theorists have made is that propositions like that one, is there a cat on the mat or there is a cat on the mat, really are um, just don't represent a lot of our more complicated uh, knowledges that something like that, there's a cat on the mat, is a relatively simple prop proposition, a relatively simple claim 
And a lot of our knowing is a little bit more complicated than that. So, um, Tool goes on to say, now exactly which features of an epistemic agent, so an epistemic agent is just a fancy word for saying a knower. So which features of, an, of a knower's social identity are of concern and how these features make a difference to what a person knows is a complicated question and it's what Tool aims to explore in this article. So first we get a, sta a standpoint epistemology primer. So Tool argues that feminist standpoint epistemologies have three core theses. One, situated knowledge. And situated knowledge is the thesis that for certain propositions, we can understand propositions to be um, statements that have truth values or um, the reference of that clauses. So things that are statements that can be true and false, let's say. So for certain propositions, this is the situated knowledge thesis, for certain propositions, whether an epistemic agent is in a position to know that proposition, so for example, know that P, whatever P means, so let's say we're talking about it raining. So for certain propositions, whether an epistemic is in a position to know that it is raining depends on some non-epistemic social facts about the agent. For, um, so let's think of some examples. So let's take the proposition, women are bad at math. Now, is it, so standpoint epistemology wants to say, and the situated knowledge thesis wants to say, that not every epistemic agent or not every knower is in the exact same place to judge the truth or falsity of that claim. So the idea is that women are in a different position to know whether women are good or not at math than men, for example. Or here's another example. The auto mechanic is in a different position, is situated differently, with respect to knowing about your car than you are, depending on how much you know about your car to begin with. So the idea is that one's social identity, this is um, Brianna, Brianna Tool, may open one up to evidence in ways that can't be captured in, traditional in the traditional epistemological picture. So the point is, on the traditional epistemological picture, where what's relevant are only um, epistemic features, they're not going to be able to capture why women are in a different position than men are as knowers about a proposition like women are good at math or women are bad at math. 
So the thesis, Toole writes, rests on this distinction between non-epistemic features and epistemic features. Epistemic features in traditional epistemology are those features that are truth-conducive, or in other words, features that make a belief more or less likely to be true. So we could think about things like um, whether, a, whether a knower S, say, knows some fact P, there must be certain conditions, traditional epistemology says. So um, proposition S can't be expressed as a fact that S knows without belief. So the knower must believe the proposition P, say, the knower believes that a cat is on the mat. This is um, part of what you need to know something. You have you believe it. The knower um, must, there must be a justifiable reason for believing these things in order to think it's appropriately held. And it must, uh, and knowledge requires truth. So these are some features that we can think of as being more in line with traditional epistemologies. And remember, standpoint epistemologies don't get rid of any of these things. They add more epistemically relevant features under the very confusing title, non-epistemic features. But this is only to distinguish them from more um, traditionally held epistemic features. So standpoint epistemologists, Toole writes, argue that other, other features are important. Other features make a difference to whether an epistemic agent knows something or not. And two other theses are important in standpoint epistemology. One is this idea of epistemic privilege, and the second is about epistemic achievement. So epistemic privilege is this idea that there is some epistemic advantage. So there's some, you have, you're in a better position to know some things by being marginalized. So for example, one, I, mean, I think we've already talked about this in an earlier lecture, but that skit that SNL did after Trump was elected about white people um, realizing when Trump was elected that that America was racist, a racist society. And Dave Chappelle was playing an, a friend in the group and, you know, his reaction was, uh, duh. So that's an example of epistemic advantage, right? Dave Chappelle is in a different position to know whether the, whether his world, his culture is racist or not than white people. White people, it makes sense that white people are epistemically disadvantaged to, to know about racism, whether racism exists or not, the extent to race, the extent of racism in their social world, the ways that racism plays out, because no one is negative, no one is racist against white people. White people aren't going to experience racism. This 
this is, um, I think this helps capture this idea of epistemic advantage. So the point about epistemic achievement is that is the idea that this epistemic advantage isn't just automatically granted because of your position. Instead, the suggestion is that this epistemic advantage has to be achieved. So this is the part where um, where later Tool is going to talk about a consciousness raising. So that just because you're socially located in a um, in a position that might give you an advantage, make you better at knowing about certain things. For example, you might be better at knowing about um, whether women are good at math or not. But just because you're a woman may not mean that you automatically know. And actually, the argument here is that you do not automatically know and that this is something that has to be achieved. It has to be worked at. And we might want to, I just want to push back on this a little bit and say that this is something we might want to reflect on and think about because one thing that this does is suggest that knowing of all sorts happens in the exact same way, right? So if we think about the example we just talked about, about the SNL skit and knowing about racism, we might think that actually knowing about racism being a person of color is something that that comes fairly easily that it's a knowing that's pretty obvious just because you're in a certain position and that it's a knowing that doesn't take a lot um, to achieve and you might think that that gets complicated that there's lots of ways you can know more or less so if you let's say let's say you you do a lot of work to understand the history of racism in the states for example that might um that might put you in a different position to to know that might mean um some of that knowing is is an achievement is achieved through that consciousness raising that that learning that work maybe in your community but we might think that whether it's takes achievement or whether there we might wonder whether we think there are some things that you know just by being um, socially situated in one place over another. Okay, so um, then we go on to the next section, which is on material readings of standpoint theory. So Tool tells us that standpoint epistemology can trace its beginnings back to the to Marx and Engels and Lukacs and their analysis of the proletariat standpoint so the the workers the standpoint of the workers and in their analysis they identified a non-epistemic feature that was significant the one's relationship to material labor so um, so Tool puts it this way for certain proposition P, or for certain statement, truth statement P, or um, truth-laden statement P, because it could be a false statement, right? 
Whether an agent is in a position to know that P depends on that agent's relationship to material labor. So Marx's point is that the um, depending on your role in a capitalist system, you're going to know different things about how capitalism works and whose interests it serves. So for example, we might think that someone at the top of a capitalist system, someone benefiting from a capitalist system, a rich fat cat, so to speak, might, might think that capitalism is good for everybody. And a um, assembly line worker might know, might be in a different position to know whose interests capitalism serves better than said fat cat. Then we have the addition of a feminist material reading of the material standpoint theory, which adds additional labor, unseen labor by Marx, that um, the feminists argue is also important. So this is, um, say, domestic labor or women's labor. And feminist materialists argued that the division of gendered labor under a capitalist patriarchy structured social relations. And, and these feminist materialists developed their accounts by exploring what they called the double shift women much, must perform, which is both labor outside of the home and then a second unpaid shift at home that was actually was labor that was central to the maintenance of capitalism by maintaining workers and creating workers so literally in producing the commodity a, a commodity in children who are a commodity because they will eventually become part of the workforce and other duties that sustained workers like preparing meals, keeping their homes clean, doing the laundry, and these things. So this is a relationship to labor that's central to, that's part of a capitalist system, but that is maybe not recognized as labor, even by, you know, forward-thinking people like Marx and Engels. And Tool wants to add additional labor to this idea of feminist materialism. So Tool adds in particular emotional labor and cognitive labor. So this is um, labor that is coded as feminine but is not directly or essentially involved with the maintenance and production of capital in a capitalist system. So it wasn't caught by these early feminist materialists because it's actually not directly or essentially part of the production of capital in a um, capitalist system, but it's other labor that is gendered. So emotional labor is about listening to other people's worries, um, things like, I mean, just being an emotional support for people. And Tool points out that this is performed disproportionately by women and people of color and especially BIPOC women because of the gendered assumptions that women are viewed 
as being nurturing by nature, which puts them in this place of um, a lot of that emotional labor falling on them. And, and also because we construct men in a certain way that they are not supposed to have feelings or not supposed to share feelings with each other. Um, and maybe you've had, maybe you have had experiences of that, of a male friend in your life who you feel really relies on you or his other female friends a lot to talk about his feelings, to talk about things that are hard that he feels he can't talk to other men about. And the second kind of labor that Tool adds is cognitive labor. So she defines this as including the invisible mental work that involves organizing, keeping track, delegating tasks, like noticing you're low on toilet paper, that the kids have an upcoming doctor's appointment, that laundry needs to be done. And she says, although men increasingly perform these chores, it is still the case that women are expected to keep mental track of what has been done. And I mean, this, this will depend on the, um, on the people as well. And she, but she writes, you know, for instance, in academia, women researchers are disproportionately asked to advise students, to engage in additional service requirements, to provide support for male colleagues, and all these things impede the, their career advancements, the, the women's career advancements, and they, they, Tool writes, they are also punished when they fail to provide these services. And she notes that this is especially true or doubly true of BIPOC people. And these forms of lab labor also, um, also result, Tool points out, in different bodies of knowledge. And the example she gives is that women of color are better, are in a better position than their white colleagues to know about the needs of students from low income and minority backgrounds because they are the ones attending to these tasks like mentoring and advising um, that involve these students. But she says this is still too narrow, this understanding, since because labor is only one aspect of the human experience. So how do we redeem this? Well, we redeem it by making more broad, like she did. How do we redeem feminist materialism, make it more broad, add these other types of labor, and by demonstrating the relevance of this account to understanding epistemic oppression, which is going to come up in exciting part two. So this is a bit of a cliffhanger. See you soon. Okay, welcome to part two of our week four class two lecture on Brianna Toole's article on standpoint theory. So we are now at section three titled Something New, a Social Reading. So here we're going to talk about a social reading of standpoint epistemology. So Toole writes, some feminist epistemologists are more concerned with more general social conditions and relations in which knowers are situated. So the way she frames the social reading of standpoint theory is, for certain propositions P or certain statements, whether a knower is in a position to know that whatever statement 
depends on the conceptual resources possessed by that agent. And by conceptual resources, tool means tools used by epistemic agents for understanding and evaluating their experiences, including language, concepts, maybe these days it includes things like memes. These tools are not stagnant but subject to change. They play an important role in directing our attention, in organizing our thought, and in structuring our reasoning. So Tool writes that she'll argue these resources have important consequences for knowledge, especially if these conceptual resources, especially if the conceptual resources an epistemic agent a knower has, depends on her social experiences. And this is um, a point that Tool makes throughout that what conceptual resources develop within um, a community or communities is going to depend on what kinds of experiences you have. So let's think a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about these conceptual resources. So um, for example, we can think about, and these are some examples that Tool gives later, we can think about um, thing, phrases like microaggression or concepts like microaggression or even more general concepts like racism and sexism, right? That's, uh, these concepts were invented, these terms to capture cer certain things, racism and sexism, but at some point they didn't exist. And you can, um, we can imagine a time where there's no word for these things and that's going to make your experiences harder to capture, right? You come home and you're like, I had the weirdest exchange with a stranger today. He just out of nowhere told me to smile and that I looked so much prettier when I smiled. And you have no, and now we could just say, oh yeah, well that's sexism. That's connected to this you know, view that men have control over women's bodies, that women are always have to be happy, that we always have to look beautiful, and this helps put your experiences in a, in a context and make sense of those things. So Tool is going to argue that these conceptual resources have important consequences for knowledge, and she's going to do this by drawing on Miranda Fricker's work on epistemic injustice. Randa Fricker is another awesome feminist philosopher. So Mer Fricker's idea of epistemic injustice is, is the way that knowers who are marginalized for all, for all kinds of reasons are excluded from meaning-generating or interpretive practices. And meaning-generating practices are practices that guide, shape, and govern the way we think about things. So Tool has a great example about legal scholarship or even let's say the writing of the criminal code, which is only done by a certain group of people. That work then shapes what sorts of acts we think of as unlawful or lawful. But lots of people are left out of this 
practice of meaning making and um, interpretive practices, which is a good word to keep in mind because we'll come back to this idea of interpretation. So we have certain knowers who are marginalized because of their social position and marginalized, we're in, talking about a particular um, consequence of that marginalization, which is being excluded from meaning generating or interpretive practices. And we can think about our last lecture on the paper by Lugonis and Spellman as a discussion of, of this, right? This whole idea of women's voices is about um, trying to rectify, trying to fix this exclusion of women's perspective from meaning-making practices, from the from defining women. That's a huge meaning-making practice. Saying what women are like, what men are like, what people of color are like, what queer people are like. These are meaning-making practices. History, defining history, saying who who um, who our scientific heroes are. All these things, all these meaning-making practices that all kinds of um, epistemic agents knowers have been excluded from and one of the big consequences of this exclusion that tool wants to talk about is the way this lack of conceptual resources because you haven't been a part of making the conceptual resources so you lack the conceptual resources that are required to understand your experience. But Fricker and um, another feminist philosopher, Polhouse, argue that these marginalized epistemic agents, that they can develop new bodies of conceptual resources in order to understand their own experiences. So here Tool gives us a helpful example, which is her experience of learning a term coined by Alice Walker, colorism. And colorism, Tool writes, is the prejudicial or preferential treatment by same-sex people, sorry, same-race people based solely on color. And she writes this goes beyond racism because racism is about discrimination based on race, but colorism is meant to capture a more nuanced form of tone-based discrimination where people are rewarded not just on the basis, I mean, on their basis of their skin color, but about, about shades. Here we're talking about shades of too light or too dark. So Tool tells the story of a recruiter who came to visit her when she was applying to a historically black college and um, or university and the treatment that she received from this recruiter because she is a light-skinned biracial woman and she writes that this experience was confusing that it was hard to place it was hard to understand and learning this term colorism just helped this experience make sense to her it made something clicked it was clear and we can think of a number of other um, conceptual re resources so one that I have found really helpful is learning about microaggressions so if you know about 
um, if you don't know about microaggressions, microaggressions is a um, phrase that was coined by Columbia University psychologist Daryl Wing Sue to capture these small everyday insults, indignities, and demeaning messages that different people um, of marginalized group get from dominant groups who don't know about the hidden message behind them. And I, I'm sure that lots of people have had these experiences. And what's so frustrating about them or confusing about them or hard to explain is on their own, they're so small. So one time I was with friends and I was carrying something. And I actually like to carry things. I don't know. It makes me feel strong. makes me feel good. I think I'm pretty strong. And um, I was carrying something. And the thing was also incredibly light. And a friend of mine, a man, a very slight, small man, I'll, I'll add, offered to take this thing I was carrying. And I was so upset by it. But it's... But I found it and I wanted to say something and I talked to another female friend of mine and she got it right away, right? Because um, she knew what I was talking about. But it was so hard. I didn't know what to say to my male friend, right? Because I knew he's the nicest man and I knew he was just being such a nice person, such a gentleman. But to me, it was just this it was just a small example. It was just one other instance of the world telling me I couldn't do something, that I was incapable, that I wasn't strong enough, that I was, that I was weak. And, and microaggressions, learning that term gave, just gave me this cons a concept to help understand and make sense of my experience and to commun and to communicate to others, right? Suddenly we have this concept that we can use to communicate with people outside of those who maybe don't share those experiences. So I could say, hey, I know you just did this small thing and it came from a really nice place, but it was a microaggression <laughs> because it makes me feel incapable, inferior, which is this repeated message. And, you know, it's like the death by a thousand cuts. And so it's each cut is so small, but the, it's the whole thing. And that's so hard to communicate with people. And coming up with these conceptual tools gives us this cultural shorthand to talk to one another across experiences. And we'll see later in this paper that there are some, there can be some um, complications with sharing those things across groups as well. So Tool is arguing that the development of conceptual resources depends on the social experiences that we have. So this is why these resources can be unavailable to describe experiences that are common to marginalized groups because the dominant communities have come up with these. They're the ones who are involved in the meaning, generating the interpretation practices, and so experiences that they don't have and that are had by marginalized groups are not conceptualized. They're not given terms. They're not interpreted. And so consequently, 
marginalized knowers, and dominantly situated knowers, because they have different social experiences, will develop a different body of conceptual resources. And she writes that when epistemic agents, when knowers don't have particular conceptual resources, it can be difficult for them to notice or attend um, to the facts that are picked out by those resources. And she writes, of course, even when dominantly situated knowers come to learn these conceptual resources, so this is what we're talking about, this complexity of sharing experiences across locations, even if you have developed these conceptual resources, there might still be an issue of uptake. And this is, she's, we're going to talk about the willful hermeneutical ignorance. And this is, this is this, this problem of uptake. And why might the dominantly situated knower not believe you, essentially? Well, because the dominant knower doesn't have these experiences. So they might suspect that this new concept is useless if, because to them, it doesn't pick out anything. It refers to nothing because it's not in their experiences. So Tool goes on to talk about a standpoint and when a standpoint emerges. So she, she says a standpoint emerges in part because of the shared social experiences of a political, of a particular group. And the emergence of a standpoint depends on the members of that marginalized group developing the conceptual resources necessary to understand their own social experiences. And she gives us two stages that a standpoint may emerge in. So the first stage is a consciousness-raising stage. And the second stage is a naming stage. So in the first stage, the consciousness-raising consciousness stage, a group of people realize they have a, a sh similar social experience or, or share a social experience. They recognize this experience and that this experience is one they have because of some aspect of their social identity. And, um, and then the second stage is they name this experience or they developed develop the concept for this experience and I just want to pause here and think about how this um, fits with what we've talked about so far so how does this idea of a group sharing a social um, sharing ex an experience because of their social identity fit with Crenshaw's point um, about intersectionality and then I, I just also want to point out that this seems um, pretty strict. So this is something that I mentioned earlier. Um, and just to think, to raise again, that we might think that conceptual resources like the one, the ones O'Toole is talking about can come about in different ways. So, I mean, there's been some great examples like Massage Noir was developed by... Um, Mo Moya Bailey and Trudy aka the Trues on twit on Twitter or Instagram and then it really got taken up had this huge uptake but that might be a way that um, 
con a conceptual resource is developed, someone tweets it, someone makes a meme of it. I don't know. I don't do these things, so I don't know all the lingo. But and then suddenly the community responds, and there's not quite this. Maybe it's maybe consciousness raising can look different depending on what we're talking about. And actually, if you look in footnote four, you'll see that um, tool. I think tools on the same page. Um, as I am here. So we wrap up this section by looking at differences between these two accounts, the material standpoint theory account and the social account. So the first is what non-epistemic features they think are important. So for the material accounts, the non-epistemic feature that they're emphasizing is one's relationship to labor. And in the social account, what's being emphasized is um, one's social position, one's embodied perspective. So um, race and sex and gender and um, able-bodied and wealth, these kinds of things. So the second difference is the social account depends on the development of conceptual resources for the emergence of a standpoint. And the material account does not because labor, Tool argues, is already an available concept. And I just want to think about that as well because it seems like one of the points that um, feminist materialists were making was that actually there was labor that um, Marx didn't see as labor. So that seems like there was a, a lack in conceptual resources. And we might think that it's not quite the same thing that Tool's talking about because what we needed to do was just expand an existing conceptual resource. So labor need to be understood more broadly. But I don't know, it's not clear to me that that's true, that there wasn't kind of conceptual resource work that need to be done, that there wasn't development of conceptual resource work in the material in the feminist material standpoint theory as well. And then the third one is the where the epistemic oppression is located and the method for dismantling this oppression in the two accounts. So in the material-based account, epistemic oppression occurs not because one lacks the conceptual tools, but maybe we want to push back on that, but because those um, conceptual tools are unjustly applied. So this is, we maybe want to think about whether this, we think this distinction holds about merely application and then um, new development. On the other hand, Tool says, socially based epistemic oppression happens because one is without the conceptual tools needed to understand and communicate one's experiences. So Tool writes that she has tried to establish two points. First, that whether a knower is in a position to know or epistemic agent, fancy word like a 007 epistemic agent, is in a position to know something, some proposition, is um, in the social domain, will depend on some non-epistemic facts related to the agent's social identity. So whether you're in a position to know something, some proposition, will depend on non-epistemic facts that are related to the agent's social identity. And number two, that one's relationship to labor, 
and one's social experiences and the concepts developed to understand those experiences are two such examples of non-epistemic social facts that are relevant and affect the production and acquisition of knowledge. Okay, so now we're going to get into some definitions. So first definition is epistemic oppression. So this is taken from Dotson, which is a paper we're going to read next week. Um, epistemic oppression is the persistent, unwarranted infringement on the knower that hinders one's contribution to knowledge production. Okay, epistemic oppression occurs when some group suffers some form of epistemic injustice in a systematic way. Next definition, hermeneutical injustice. So hermeneutics is another fancy word for the study of interpretation. So remember we were talking about um, meaning generating practices and interpretation of experiences. So another way to think about a hermeneutical injustice is just an interpretive justice, injustice, sorry. So this occurs when there is some significant area of someone's social experience that's obscured from understanding because of prejudicial flaws in meaning-making practices or that and that lead to shared conceptual resources for social interpretation for the interpretation of one's experiences so the exa so one example that tool talks about more later is sexual harassment so sexual harassment didn't exist as a term until relatively recently and it was hard then it makes it hard to talk about things right it's like oh my boss did this really weird thing this awful thing at work oh well it was one time it's so small it's not a big deal it's like no it was sexual harassment suddenly that concept this shorthand the shorthand that has all these things built into it it's serious it's not right suddenly you don't have to explain all these things they're just they are a part of the concept they're packed into these concepts this shorthand so um, our next definition is willful hermeneutical ignorance so this is something that was talked about earlier it's that problem of uptake so you feel relief thank gosh i have this um, concept now to describe my experience to you the outsider who won't have this experience like microaggressions oh my gosh that white woman wanted to touch my hair again and you know oh and then your white friend goes oh that's not a big deal she seemed really nice no it was a microaggression oh yeah i know what that is i'm learning about that in professor regina rini's class which regina rini is a great professor at uh, york who does do research on microaggressions so willful hermeneutical is just injustice is when a dominantly situated knower refuses to acknowledge or use the conceptual tools developed by marginal knowers and as such fails to understand or misinterprets part of the world and this occurs after situated knowers have developed their own conceptual resources and when two conditions are met one that marginally situated knowers have developed conceptual resources such that they are able both to understand and communicate their experience to others and 
two, the second thing, those conceptual resources are dismissed by dominantly situated knowers. And we talked about this before because often it appears to the dominantly situated knowers that this conceptual resource doesn't capture anything because it's not in their experience. That's why racism can be a surprise to some and not to others because it's not it's not the way you experience the world. Epistemic exploitation, and we'll read more about this in the next um, in our next article by Berenstain, is uh, when privileged persons compel marginalized persons to produce an education or explanation about the nature of the oppression that they face. So now Tool is going to take all these definitions that we have just gone through epistemic exploitation, epistemic oppression, willful hermeneutical um, ignorance and hermeneutical injustice and connect them back to the social reading and the material reading of standpoint theory. So first she writes that hermeneutical injustice and willful hermeneutical ignorance, so this is the hermeneutical injustice is this lack of conceptual resources because you've been excluded from the process of creating those, of interpreting experiences, like of making the laws, it was one example, and willful hermeneutical ignorance when you, when a group has developed those resources, but dominantly situated knowers reject those um, conceptual resources. And Toole argues that these are tied to a social reading of standpoint theory because social standpoint theory reveals, it points out how our conceptual resources are tied to our social experiences. It can explain how these things happen because it explains how conceptual resources and meaning making are are not independent of our social experiences are very much reflect very much reflect our our experiences then finally epistemic oppression she ties to the material reading and she argues that emotional and cognitive labor are forms of epistemic exploitation which tie into the material reading so she talks about how emotional and cognitive labor captures the notion that in performing this sort of labor, the energy of people is demanded and depleted. And a lot of times, I think when we're talking about emotional and cognitive labor, these can be really um, exhausting and emotionally demanding conversations, right? Like, oh, explain to me why that... Um, that man offering to carry something was sexist like you're making a big deal about anything unless you can prove to me it's important that's that's emotional and cognitive labor and that's tiring because it's very personal to you and it's often not personal to the person who doesn't understand it right that's why it's not personal and that's why they don't understand because it's not part of their social experiences Okay, so then she goes on to talk about schemas and myths. And basically, schemas are stereotypes, are close to stereotypes. And myths are the social narratives that justify and maintain these hierarchies or, or you know, and ways of justifying these stereotypes. So she gives an example. Um, 
And the connection between, she also talks about the way the relationship between schemas, myths, history, and nature. So she has this great example that kind of captures all these ideas, which is the historical reality that women have occupied traditional occupied roles traditionally afforded lower social status like nurses wives mothers the occupation of these roles is justified by schemas which are like stereotypes so this schema that frames women as emotional and nurturing and life-giving and then these schemas are legitimized by social myths that characterize women as caring and giving by nature so suddenly we have a, a historical reality that that's um made that's made natural and justified by these legitimizing myths that are also upheld by schemas these frameworks about or these um stereotypes about individuals events or groups so Finally, um, O'Toole offers a possible solution to these, one possible solution or one avenue to address these things, which is practical, productive interactions. And those interactions, those practical, productive interactions are ones where one attends to the type of labor in which one is engaged. And the relation between that labor and the relationships in one's life that we must enter into in order to survive, produce, and reproduce our means of life. This, these she calls the social relationships of production. And these interactions are ones that yield knowledge that's socially impactful, that yield knowledge of the schemas and the legitimizing myths that are taken to justify one's oppression. So these are revealing interactions interactions that reveal these schemas these stereotypes these myths and hopefully we're engaged in a practical production practical productive interactions in this class that's my, that's my dream i really hope so and finally tool finishes by saying that dominantly situated knowers are unlikely to have such practical productive interactions both because they aren't expected to engage in these forms of interactions, this form of epistemic work, and because they have come to represent the, these inequalities as reflecting nature. They've absorbed these schemas and myths to the point where they can't see past them. And maybe they don't have much reason to see past them because they're schemas and myths that are benefiting them. And I just want to finish by pushing back on this last point a little bit. Because one, one way we might think that this is um, problematic is for reasons of intersectionality, right? It seems like there's going to be very few knowers who are dominantly situated in every way. And many knowers who are dominantly situated in some ways and marginally situated in other ways. But what does that mean for whether or not they're likely to engage in these practically productive um, interactions? So we'll end there for today and I'll see you at our next class.